Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Good to see all of you. I'm Montejudo with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is the Air of Shabbat broadcast for B'nai Shalom. Thank you for inviting us into your home or wherever you're at so that you can be a part of this service. Uh, we'll start Kiddush here very shortly, but a couple of quick announcements I'd like to share with you. On a personal note, on behalf of my wife, Lynn, I want to say thank you very much for all of the many encouraging notes and cards. Some of you have been, even sent gifts in to help defray some of the expense. Some of you have sent flowers. Of All of these acts of kindness, even simple notes, and letting us know that you're praying, have been highly encouraging to my wife. And, uh, and I, we do covet your continued prayers uh, that God would uh, grant her extension of her life. Uh, from this uh, diagnosis of lung cancer. The latest uh, reports that we have from the doctors is there appears to be another mass that is growing in the lower part of her spine, which is causing some very, very severe pain for her uh, with her sciatic nerve uh, in her leg. And so we pray especially for that, for a little mitigation of pain uh, for her. So, But uh, I want you to know that every kindness that has been expressed to us is deeply appreciated by her and by myself, and so we thank you for that. We do appreciate your continued prayers on her behalf. Um, we are coming up into the springtime. Shavuot is not too far away. In fact, we're in the days of the counting of the Omer, leading to the Feast of Weeks. Now, I don't want you to get confused, all right? If you're following the traditional Hillel calendar, the Jewish calendar, the diaspora calendar, they are advanced in the counting of the Omer. Uh, and they always begin the count of the Omer on the 16th of Nisan, the day right after the high Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They don't wait for the, week, wait for the weekly Sabbath and then begin the count. Now, this is a long-standing, well-known controversy in the Scripture dating all the way back to the days of Yeshua. Uh, this ministry teaches that which Yeshua did, that which Moses specified, and very simply said, we are to count seven Sabbaths on the morrow after the seventh Sabbath is a Feast of Weeks, which means that the count has to begin on a day after a Sabbath so that you have one, and then you count seven Sabbaths that comes to 50 days. So it's a weekly Sabbath, not the high Sabbath of the unleavened bread, is the, the morrow after the Sabbath. This is, like I said, a well-known disparity between the Pharisaic interpretation versus Sadducean and Messianic interpretation. There's still many of our brethren who still follow the Hillel uh, calendar, the calendar that's first in the rabbinical interpretation on that. And that's the reason why when I say to you on this Sabbath, we're counting the Omer, and it is day seven. And this is the first Sabbath of the count. Now, if you're following the other, I think they said the first, uh, the seventh day was back uh, Tuesday. And they were saying it was last week, you know, uh, during the Tuesday. So they're going to be off several days from us. Don't be confused. If you stick with us, this will lead you to the 50th day of June 4th. It'll be June 3rd is the 7th Sabbath, and we'll be on observing that on the morrow after the 7th Sabbath. So don't be confused about that. Just plan on coming and joining us for Shavuot.
you know, that weekend. And uh, you'll be able to join with us at that time. Registration is open for that. And I, just as a reminder, the fees are going to increase come May 1. We have to make some hard decisions on some costs and expense. So get yourself in there and get a spot in there and plan on joining us. We'd love to have you. Also, registration is also open for the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. If you have an RV, let me encourage you to get in there, get registered early so it's first come, first serve on the prime RV spots for us to park you in there and get you into the camp, uh, especially into Area C if you have an RV unit. All right, so that's a word to the wise uh, for those of you planning on keeping the Feast of the Lord. So let's... Uh, Let's begin our Sabbath. I'm ready for Sabbath. I hope you are too. So join us now for Kiddush. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Please join our family as we welcome in the Sabbath. of our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day, and I thank you for the wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, even in the middle of the night when she sees about the ways of the household. I pray that you would bless her and encourage her as she teaches and educates the children. I thank you for the blessing that she is to me and to our home and to our family. 
And I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her. Give her the product of her hands in everything that she does. And Father, I confess to her and to you that I love my wife. So Father, I pray that you would bless her with your very best blessing on this Sabbath day. We also lift up the widows and orphans, those without a husband or a father at this time as well. So we thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Let us bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you.
be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha Ba'elim Adonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Ba'chodesh Nohora Tehilot Oh Sefelei Oh Sefelei Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. 
Baruchat Aronai, Elhenu Melech Alam, Asher Natan Lanu et Derech, Hayashua Bamashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru Ben Israel at Hashabat, Lasot et Hashabat, Ladortam, Burit Olam, Bene Avayom, Bene Israel, Odhit Leolam, Kishashet Yamim, Asadonai, et Hashmaim, Vayet Haoret, Ovayom, Hashabi Ishavat, Vayinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. But I'll turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Ba'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha. Ve'shinan tam la'venecha, v'tepardabam p'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakpika, uv'kumika. Ukershatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totvo binenecha, uketavtama mazuzo petecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you, to worship you, to praise your name. For you are holy, Father. We invite you to come and join us in our midst, Father, as we lift your name high.
Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, to chapter 9, where our Torah portion for this week will begin. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher barkabanu mikol haamim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten haTorah haamein Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our portion for this week is entitled Shemini. Uh, which comes from Leviticus chapter 9, starting at verse 1, where it says, And it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Where we pick up from the previous portion in our Torah was Aaron and his sons were sitting in the doorway of the tent of meeting for seven days, being consecrated to be priests to do the work of the tabernacle and the altar service. For seven days, they sat in one place, separated, consecrated from the rest of the children of Israel. They ate bread, and they are waiting for this eighth day. Then this eighth day was then going to be a great celebration in the, uh, in the camp of Israel, because this is then when the services of the altar and the tabernacle can then get underway. Because our title of our Torah portion is uh, the eight or eighth Shemini, um, it's always interesting to talk about numbers and their meanings. Um, and when it comes to uh, certain numbers, when you study the Bible, study scripture, you start to learn certain numbers mean certain things. Um, the number seven, for instance, always means the plan of God or the perfect plan of God. There's seven appointed festivals uh, for where, us to keep each year. There's seven days in the week. God created the world in seven days. Prophecy teachers 
always have taught that there's seven millennia of creation, um, and we're looking forward to the seventh, the Sabbath of millennia, the thousand-year reign with the Lord. Seven always has to do with the plan of God. Well, eight has another very interesting meaning, and eight always represents new beginnings, or it's the renewal of a cycle, such as if you were to say, well, the eighth day of the week. Well, nobody really says that, but if you were to say that, it would, you were talking about the first day of the next week. This number eight always has this pattern of something new is beginning or something is being renewed. We're starting a cycle over again. Uh, the number eight uh, has always meant something to me personally um, in my own uh, family. Um, I've been told and traced my generations back that I'm the eighth generation of Judah male, uh, those with the last name Judah, since my family immigrated to the United States of America. And so I've always felt like that maybe something is new going to happen with me, my life, and my generation for my family. Obviously, that would make my father the seventh generation of Judah male, which probably has its own significance as well. Um, but so the number eight has always meant something to me, and I've always, uh, I've always liked the number eight, if I could say that. It always means something is being renewed. And what we have here is the exact same thing. After seven days of waiting, we now have the new altar service ready to go underway. The Aaron and his sons. And what we have in chapter 9 is we have very specific um, uh, sacrifices that Aaron uh, that was prescribed for Aaron to do for him to then be consecrated as the high priest. And so this just kind of finishes out the... Um, ordination of the priesthood and Aaron as the high priest that continued from our previous uh, chapters in Leviticus. This was a great glorious day. In fact, I want to go ahead and skip ahead to the end of chapter 9 where it talks about this, starting at verse 22. It says, Then Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people. You've got to remember, all of Israel was gathered for this wonderful event. He blessed them came down and came down from the from offering the sin offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings and Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and the fire came out before the Lord consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar when all the people saw it they shouted and fell on their faces this was the first time that Aaron as high priest lifted his hands and proclaimed the blessing of over uh, the children of Israel. This is the ironic blessing that we'll learn more about in the book of Numbers. Um, that th this was a great and glorious time. That when he called out, and this began um, a tradition within the um, within the tabernacle, the temple service. Um, those that have studied that, that this, this was a almost like a miracle of the service. That whenever this blessing was done, the people shouted and fell on their faces when they heard the name of the Lord. When they received the blessing, this was a wonderful event. Um, that took place. This is the culmination of everything from the commandment to build the tabernacle, to worship the Lord, for the Lord to dwell here. This was the first accepted sacrifice when the glory of the Lord and the fire of the Lord burned up that first burnt offering. This was a wonderful, joyous time. We've been building up to this point for so long, for so many Torah portions that we've been studying the tabernacle, that this is finally where it comes to a head, if you will. Now, this would be a wonderful time. You would think that 
nothing could go wrong on this day. Well, we always have something, and our story continues, and this is something that um, some people have heard and related it to um, always doing what the Lord is called to do and not anything more, not anything less. And so in beginning in chapter 10 here at Leviticus, we read about the sons of Aaron by the names of Nadab and Abihu. So read along with me. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. They put fire on it put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called uh, Mishael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near, they carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. So we have this wonderful, joyous festival of the um, consecration of the high priest and these first sacrifices. And then the sons of Aaron do something that they were not supposed to do. Um, it comes later on that describes, and I'll get to this point here, where it then a commandment for the Levitical priesthood to not drink any wine or strong drink in the process of serving the tabernacle. So because that commandment is present, we have very good reason to believe that these young men were drunk. They had, um, they had had a little bit too much to drink, and they went and they did something that was not commanded by the Lord and not prescribed by him in the altar service. Rabbis have said that Nadab and Abihu were not bad men. They were not. They, they, there was not necessarily malice in their heart to do something that they they didn't intend to do something wrong. However, because of the holy nature of God and this altar service and this tabernacle, there was grave consequences for not doing something appropriate. Where it says that they offered profane fire, a lot of translations say strange fire. That's the same word. This directly goes back to Exodus chapter 30 at verse 9 when we had the commandment of the incense where it said, offer no strange fire. It's that exact same word, zara, uh, uh, which means stranger. Um, it's very interesting. If you look at the Hebrew letters of that word, I always love to look at that and see what other meanings can be. Um, and it's made with a zayn, a resh, and a hay. And what that is, is that's the zayn is a sword or a weapon, if you will. And then you have a head, or uh, which resh represents, and then hay, which is always what is revealed. And so you almost have this interesting word picture of death, if you will, where you have a sword and a head, as if a sword were to cut off a someone's head. This is what this word is, that if you look into the deeper Hebrew meanings, of this strange, profane fire that they offered. Some have speculated that this was, was it the, actually, there was nothing wrong with the incense and the fire and the way they did it. They just did it at the wrong time. Or did they offer an incense that was not prescribed? Did they make their own mix and something? This has always been speculated exactly what the nature of their sin was, but what because that detail is not given in our scripture, that's not necessarily for us to learn. So what are we to learn? We're to learn that God is holy. That God is not, he, that anything that he has not asked for to be in his dwelling place, where he's going to be, where he is, there's so much detail regarding the holiness of the high priest, the altar service, the sacrifices. There's so much detail that there's no reason for us to try and fit the pieces in somewhere else. 
God has asked for us to be holy as he is holy. And that's how our portion will continue. And that will continue to be the narrative of the book of Leviticus. It's all about holiness. It's all about what is appropriate, what is clean versus unclean, what is holy as opposed to profane. That we have to learn that even that there are grave consequences if we do not learn this, if we do not learn and understand the holiness of God. When he has commanded something, it is to be done in the way that he has commanded it. Amen. Very interesting also that they carried out their brethren by their tunics. That means this was a supernatural fire that consumed Nadab and Abihu. They weren't burned up. They weren't, their clothes weren't burned away. But this was a, this was a manner of death that was not, um, what did not, was not natural. That there was a supernatural thing that took place here. In verse 6 here of chapter 10, it continues on. Moses said to Aaron and to Eliezer and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. You've got to remember what they were still doing. They were still finishing out the consecration of this tabernacle, this thing that we've been waiting for, the culmination of the creation of the tabernacle and the ordination of the priesthood and the altar service. It was common in those days when you were to mourn somebody that you would shave your head or that you would rent your garments. And that is exactly, you got to remember that these men were, has been consecrated for seven days to do this work. They're wearing the holy garments that God has prescribed. Aaron's wearing the garments of the high priest. He was not allowed to rent his garment in mourning for the loss of his sons in this process because of what he was wearing. Because that would have negated the entire priesthood. That would have destroyed this beautiful thing that God has commanded to be created. Some have speculated that this was some form of punishment upon Aaron, again, because of the sin of the golden calf. That there was that this was some sort of judgment upon Aaron. There's a lot of people that speculate whether um, God would allow somebody to die in the process of or to be a punishment to somebody else. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but again, speculation has been that whether this was intended to affect Aaron more so than anyone else, if you will. Our scripture continues where it talks about the conduct of the priests and what they are supposed to do. Verse 8, then the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. You or your sons when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever through your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. And that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. The priesthood are the intercessors between God and the children of Israel. They are in a very specific position that they have to fulfill. That is why this is a statute for them when they're doing the work of the tabernacle. They are not to drink wine and strong drink because of the position that they're in. They have to be the teachers, the, the uh, intermediaries between Israel and God. And they have to be of sound mind They because their job is to distinguish between holy and unholy, clean and unclean. So they have to be of sound mind. This is something that some teachers have uh, taken application into their own lives. Uh, my father, myself, feel this way as well, that it's like when one goes to teach and one goes to speak before the Lord, 
Don't drink strong drink before you go to congregation, before you have the opportunity to counsel, to teach. And it says in the service of the tabernacle. So that doesn't mean that it's a that, that you abstain from it at all times. But when it comes time to do the work of the Lord, do not take do not drink strong drink, do not drink alcohol, liquor, whatever it might be, that so that when you go to do the work of the Lord, you're of sound mind and you're ready to do the work that God has called you to do. Great application that can be done for anyone who's in that position, a position of ministry, a position of leadership. Um, one should always take um, that. That's a good practical application to your life um, if you're in that position to do so. Um, what follows continues on in our scripture um, here for the rest of uh, chapter 10 is it, it kind of finishes off um, what happened to the sacrifices and, and the altar. And then we have an interesting story here, starting at verse 16, um, where Moses, he goes and he uh, seeks out the status of the sacrifices, and he finds a goat that was of a sin offering. That, If you remember from our instruction about sin offerings, that part of a sin offering was always eaten by the priests. And that part was part of it was burned and part of it was eaten by the priests. Moses goes and he sees that the sin offering was still on the altar and was completely burned up. And Moses questions what's going on with the, the sin offering. He goes to Aaron and uh, let me go ahead and read. Uh, Moses, this is Moses's question uh, to Aaron and the other priests. Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the holy place since it is most holy? And God has given it to you to bear guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in the holy place as I commanded. Aaron said to Moses, look. This day has offered their uh, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord and such things have befallen me such as losing his sons if I had eaten the sin offering today would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord so when Moses heard this he was content we have this interesting story here where something then was done that maybe wasn't pres- that wasn't prescribed by God yet God doesn't uh, intervene in this situation. Moses has this question. Why did you not perform the sacrifice in just the right way? Why did the priests not partake of the parts of the sin offering? Um, and what's going on here is that Aaron, who's mourning, who doesn't have the opportunity to mourn, there's a question on whether Nadab and Abihu were supposed to partake of that offering as well. They're now no longer here. So what is then the prescribed, what, then, then what are we supposed to do? So we have this interesting question here. What's also interesting about this story, and this is for those that do some deeper study here, is when in the word where Moses says he goes to inquire about the sin offering, the Hebrew word there is derash. And that word right there is the very middle word of all of Torah. Not letter, but word. Derash, which means to seek. And so we have this interesting story here of what's going on here in the tabernacle. But then we have a deeper uh, study here of this word derash, which means to seek. And we have the very center of the Torah here, the very center word of the Torah. It's very interesting to think that because what is at the very heart of Torah and what we're supposed to do? We're seeking after God. We're seeking after his ways. So it's very interesting that a word like that might be found in the very center of the Torah. The letters that make up that word is a dalit, a resh, and a shin. Those all have different uh, meanings as well. The shin sometimes represents El Shaddai, Almighty God. And the resh represents the head. And the dalit represents the door. Now, when we hear the door, and for those of us believers in Yeshua, Yeshua himself said, I am the door. 
I am the and the number four, which is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Dalit, has patterns and meanings to Yeshua. And so we have this even deeper study into at the very center of the Torah. We are instructed to seek after the Almighty God and to seek after the Son of God who called himself the door. Very interesting thing here. Deep within the heart of Torah and in deeper study, we have these interesting things that we can draw out. The rest of our Torah portion uh, goes through the rest of the book of Leviticus and chapter 11. Many people know chapter 11, that this is the chapter in which we now have, we start talking about what is kosher, foods that are permitted to eat. And so we have two very distinct halves of our Torah portion here. First, we're talking about being holy, doing what God has called us to do. And then the whole narrative of Leviticus shifts to start talking about what we do in our own personal lives to be holy, to be clean before the Lord. This is when the chapter, when Leviticus shifts to what I like to personally consider to be the owner's manual of the human body. In the same way that we have an owner's manual for our vehicles that talk about what kind of fuel we're supposed to use and how often we have to uh, fix, repair the vehicle uh, when something, when you see something wrong, like a check engine light, you're supposed to check on it, fix it. It's not in proper working condition. So then you have to make a change. You, same way that we do these things with a vehicle, we have in our scripture now talking about what is when something is wrong and what can make your personal body unclean or make your personal body um, not in proper working condition. So when we're talking about food, we're talking about the fuel of your body. What do you eat? What, is, what nourishes you? That kind of thing. And there is prescribed by God things that are good for you to eat and things that are not good for you to eat. In the same way that you have an unleaded gasoline engine, you're not supposed to put diesel fuel in an unleaded gasoline engine. So, then the same way, you, that, that's maybe an oversimplification, but to me, that's, that's at the nature, at the heart of what God is instructing us to do. That's what we're to learn. So we have this list. Now, um, I won't be able to go into a huge amount of detail on what is clean, what is unclean. You can look up as many lists as you'd like of rabbis that say, well, this fish is clean, this animal is clean, this one is not. And you'll find some discrepancies here and there. One can do a great amount of study. But what I want to do is I want to talk about the nature of what, what we're talking about here as far as um, eating what is clean and unclean. We have the we've already had the commandment about blood that we're not to consume blood that the life is in the blood the life of the animal so when you consume an animal you are nourishing your body because of the death of another animal so there's to be life is to be sanctified the Torah is for life the Torah is for holiness that this is not something that should be profane that should be uh, um, exaggerated if you will. We have a list of animals that are clean for us to eat. We have those that split the hoof and who chew the cud. That would be animals like, um, like lambs, goats, cows, that kind of thing, that are clean. And it, those that have done studies on biology, that these animals are actually very clean in what they, depending on what they eat, depending on the nature and the anatomy of their bodies. And then things that are not for us to eat, like other rodents, though they chew the cud, rabbits, a hyrax, they chew the cud, but they don't split the hoof. They're not clean for us to eat. And swine who split the hoof but don't chew the cud, that is not clean for us to eat. 
It's all because of, you can do the scientific studies and see, these are naturally, when it says clean and unclean, we're talking literally animals that are clean, they're free of bacteria, parasites, protozoa, and then you have other animals that bacteria thrive in those animals. And so then some people say, like, oh, we can cook that out and we can do that. However, God has commanded us specifically to eat these versus other things. And God knows more than just what science can prove. God created our bodies and he knows what is good for us. Now, I've said before about the tactics of the enemy, that the enemy wants to diminish what the God has commanded. He wants to make you question the commandments. He wants to, if he could remove one commandment from Torah, he would, and he'd be satisfied with that. And so when it comes to witnessing the new covenant brethren, this has always been a huge point of contention. When it comes to, you, you start talking about the ways of the Lord and what you learn from Torah, and you can enlighten them with, with the how the stories of the children of Israel relate to you as a Christian believer. And then once you then start saying, well, then you got to keep the commandments. And then it's like, oh, well, wait a minute. Does that mean I have to keep kosher too? Because if you start messing with their precious bacon and pepperoni pizza, then suddenly we have a, everything's on hold when it comes to following the words of the Lord. The enemy has created, has, has taken these commandments, profaned them, and then made people and, and spoken to them through their stomachs that they can't follow the commandments of the Lord because you can't take away their precious bacon. The enemy has made bacon this incredible thing that they think is so good that you can't that they can't live without that it would that something as simple as that would keep them from following the commandments of the Lord. That is a tactic of the enemy. This is where many people have struggled with ministering to, to others. Yet sometimes science is needed to, to prove it to them. Some people will be will hear a doctor say, "Well, all you have to do is take this pill and you'll be healed." And people will listen to doctors and they'll do that more so than the way they would listen to the very words of God that tell them this is good for you to do. This is something that where we have to pray that the Lord would stir in the hearts of the people to have a heart to keep these commandments, to turn back to the ways of the Lord when in, with something as important as food to some people, that they have to really have a change of heart to follow after the commandments of the Lord and to stop ordering pepperoni pizza. This is... Um, we have a very interesting list as this goes down from the land animals to the water animals. What is clean when it comes to fish is those with fins and scales. Those that fish that are able to move through the water, they keep their bodies clean. The scales protect their bodies from uh, bacteria. Any other uh, fish that has either skin or some other kind of uh, covering on it or doesn't have fins, those are all to be detestable to us. That touching their carcasses make us unclean and we're not to eat those. But again, the enemy uses that as a lie as well where people uh, they boast about a wonderful lobster dinner that that's somehow some sort of beautiful amazing great thing that two people can eat another lie of the enemy whether it's bacon or lobster that makes people think that it's so wonderful when it is unclean those things are scavengers those animals are they, they clean the ecosystem and they were never meant for food consumption they have a purpose in god's creation but they're not meant for food same thing for the birds. Of most of the birds that are unclean for us to eat, they're often the raptors, the birds of prey, those the buzzards and vultures that clean up nature after uh, an animal has died. Those are not meant for us to eat and consume as food. They have their own purpose in God's creation. Other birds are clean for us to eat, the ones that are domesticated um, and things like that. 
Um, it talks about insects, that all the things that we can eat uh, are the things like locusts, crickets, uh, things that have a jointed leg. Now, not that we get excited about eating those things. However, those things are also clean for us to eat as well. It continues on, and here at, at verse 24, it kind of changes a little bit. By these things you become unclean. If you touch the carcass of any of them, you shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries part of the car- carcass um, will wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. We have a commandment in here that it actually covers for us if we have a domesticated pet. And if we have a dog, family dog or a family cat, that if it dies, it's an unclean animal to eat. But it gives a prescription for if you have to remove the body of that animal, bury it, you're unclean until evening. There's a just a there's a simple procedure here that these are not hard. These are not complicated. These aren't things that you become unclean and you have to go through a seven day process of cleansing. When we get into next week's chapter where we start talking about leprosy, you know, there's a lot larger cleansing process. Well, when it comes to the animals that are clean, unclean, these are very simple to follow. They really are. Certain things that are unclean for you to touch the carcass of. If you have to move the carcass, you're unclean for a period of time. Things that you can't eat, things that you can't eat, things like that. It continues on talking about all the different lizards and things that creep along the earth. Uh, My scripture says uh, something in uh, verse 29 where it talks about the large lizard and after its kind is unclean for us to eat. I've always speculated if dinosaurs were still around at this time that in scripture, if that's what it's describing uh, at that time. So that's always an interesting little thing um, that catches my attention. We have, um, again, other prescriptions for what is clean and unclean, um, but let me go ahead and here continue here to the, um, the, to the conclusion here of this chapter when it talks about this. Let me go ahead and read here starting at verse 41. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. It shall not be eating. E- eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, what goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet along all creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make, make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy." Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of, out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living thing that moves in the water and every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. This is the whole finality. This is the whole conclusion of the matter. Be holy. For I am holy. This is what it is. When God, we've talked about the tabernacle. I've related it to your body being a temple and a heart where God, and in your heart where God can dwell as well. And he calls for certain things and certain prescribed things to happen in his house, in his tabernacle. And we had an example earlier in this portion of if you do the wrong thing, there are grave consequences. He now then continues in this part where he's talking about what you put in your own tabernacle, in your own body, because he wants to dwell within the hearts of his people, and he does not want any unclean thing there. And the whole point of this, to the food, it's not about what tastes good. It's not even necessarily about what is good to nourish you. We're not talking about protein content and carbohydrates. We're talking about what is holy and what is profane. And he wants his people to be holy. To be distinguished, to be consecrated from the rest of the world. I'll tell you one thing. 
Nothing will distinguish you more in a crowd if you're sitting at a, at a restaurant and then everybody, there's, a, there's an appetizer going around that is unclean, not kosher, and then when you don't partake of it or you turn it down, there's nothing that sets you apart from that crowd than that situation right there. When you're sitting in and somebody's ordering pizza and all they want is pepperoni pizza and you're requesting that there not be pepperoni pizza, then they're like, why? Because you don't eat those things. It, it practically, it sets us apart. It separates us in our own little social circumstances. That's a microcosm of what God is trying to do. To set apart His people from the rest of the world. Be holy, for I am holy. As we continue here through the book of Leviticus, I do want to point out, when I read that whatever crawls on its belly, that Hebrew word there is gahon. And in that Hebrew word, there is an elongated vav. And traditionally, that's been said that that is the very center of the Torah with the number of letters on either side. Some other people have done a study and said that that's actually not the exact center. But traditionally, rabbis have taught this center point of, the te of Leviticus uh, here in our passage. I already had the center point, the center word of Torah. And now we have a traditional teaching of the very center letter. What are we focusing on here in Leviticus? about being holy, what is holy, what is profane, what is clean, what is unclean. We're talking about the belly, if you will, that Hebrew word right there. It causes us to take, to, to take note of that. So as we go through Leviticus, what are we talking about here, the holiness of your own personal body? We're talking about the abdomen. We're talking about from here to here. We're talking about everything that goes into your heart, your ego, your chest, when it puffs up. We talk about what goes into your stomach. And later on in the book of Leviticus, we'll talk about sexual immorality and everything that goes on down there. And we're talking about the belly of the person that is, we're going to focus on what is clean, what is unclean, what is holy, and what is profane. And like I said before, the owner's manual of the human body. We need to know how to keep this holy and clean. Our inwardmost parts, our inwardmost being, where our, where our vital organs are, that causes us to live, to be sustained, where the Lord dwells in our body. And so much of it has to do with blood, which belongs to God and the life given to us by God. And so as we go through these portions of Leviticus, where some people might get a little squeamish, some people aren't excited to talk about these things and these things that make us clean and unclean. We don't like talking about that. We don't like talking about being unclean. But we have to learn these things so that we can be holy. So that we don't make some mistake like Nadab and Abihu do, where we make some sort of grave mistake that causes us to lose our life for the Lord to not dwell with us, within us, and within our hearts. We want to live. Torah is for life, and these commandments are for, for life. So as we continue through the book of Leviticus for the next couple of weeks, I want that to be our focus. What is clean and proper for our bodies, for our lives, so that we can continue to have the Lord and his presence with us, dwelling with us. And so that we can learn, though we struggle mightily, to be holy as the Lord is holy. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your instruction, your teaching, and we thank you, Lord, for the book of Leviticus. Though some might want to write it off and think that it's a bunch of archaic commandments, Lord, Father, we want to take them to heart. Father, we want to learn and keep the commandments that you have instructed for us to be holy before you, to be a holy and chosen and set apart people before you, Lord, just as the priesthood was set apart and distinguished from the rest of Israel, Father. I pray that you would distinguish us as your people. 
Father, though it's embarrassing sometimes to stand out and, and to, to be different from the rest of the world, Father, I pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us in our most holy faith to follow your words and your instructions, regardless of what others may say, regardless of what embarrassment, uh, embarrassment might come. Father, you have called us to be holy for you are holy. And so, Father, I pray that we would uh, have these commandments be renewed in our hearts, in our spirits. And Father, let us not be led astray by the deception of the enemy. Let us not be distracted um, and let his deception continue to fester in the lives of our other believers. Father, I pray that you would make us a light unto the nations, a beacon and a sign of your covenant to many other brethren, Lord, that we can minister to others and that we can be an encouragement to others by following your commandments. Give us the blessings that come from those commandments, Lord. Continue to be with us, walk with us, guide us with your Holy Spirit in all things. We thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chayalam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the Torah of Truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Good to see everyone. If you would, please open your Bibles to the second book of Samuel, to uh, chapter 6. Hold your finger there for a moment. Uh, this uh, particular Torah portion that Ephraim uh, just shared with us, uh, Shemini has a whole variety of things in there, and some of it has to do with the ordination of the priests and how they got the tabernacle up and running. Well, this portion is where King David is going to make the decision that he doesn't want the Ark of the Covenant to dwell in tents anymore or in a tabernacle anymore. He wants to build a permanent house for the Lord there in Jerusalem. And so it tells us about his journey of bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, the events surrounding what happened there. And, and his conversation with Nathan the prophet, uh, Nathan didn't write any books, but Nathan is a very powerful prophet in the history of Israel and was a prophet to King David in that time frame. Uh, so uh, follow along with me here in Second Samuel chapter 6. Let me read a portion of this to you, and then we'll be discussing. That's how that, this portion of the Haftorah fits into the Torah portion for this week. So, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now David again gathered all of the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all of the people who were with him to Balei uh, Yehuda, who, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinav, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinah, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinah, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark, 
And meanwhile, David and all the house were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached up out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the uh, oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of God burned against Uznah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became very angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uznah. And the name of that place was Perez Uznah to this day. Before we go any further, let's kind of get the scene. Now, David is gathers a whole entourage, 30,000 men. That's a pretty strong entourage. And he brings musicians. You know, David was a musician himself. He played the harp and so forth. And so he wants to have a joyous worship experience with a whole large number of people. They're, they're going to transport the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to bring it up to the city of David, up to Jerusalem, and transport it. So they're in the process of doing that. Now, for some reason, they thought it was a good idea that they would just put this big ark, which is heavy, and rather than use the staves and have the priests carry it, like they used to carry it in the wilderness, he said, well, let's get a cart. And so they made a cart expressly for this purpose. They put it on the cart. And uh, there was a couple of men that were kind of in charge of the cart to drive the cart and, and uh, take it there. And in the course of them making their journey, and it specifically announces that the place where they came from, that there was hills. There was a hilly area where they were at. By the way, if you've been to the land of Israel and so forth, there's lots of hills that you'll see. And the cart and uh, the animals that were carrying it in the direction toward it became, it was an unsettled situation. I mean, if you can imagine a very heavy load on a truck or a cart and you get into a precarious roadway that hasn't been properly prepared for it, uh, the load will shift on you. And apparently this is what happened. As they're bringing it, the ark begins to tip, and there's a concern that the load is, the cart's not doing its job properly. And this man, who's one of the two men that was responsible for bringing it up with the cart, reached out and apparently put his hand up against and touched the ark in an effort to brace it. He was died. He died instantly. Um, now, we don't know if the cart actually slid and crushed him. Uh, we don't know if that's what it, the, was it tipped and he got in the way of it and it tipped. Uh, but there, it begs a whole series of questions. And back, in fact, if you go back in and do a detailed study on this, you'll find various Bible commentators talking about, well, the real mistake here was David should have had the priests carry the thing with the staves. You know, that it would have been a series of them to do that, uh, as opposed to this cart thing. Um, and that these men weren't priests, and they had no business coming into contact with the ark. Priests could come into contact with it, but not them. Um, and, and so there's some commentation, commentators that say that that was the issue. That, that's the reason why this happened. Uh, because it is in sharp contrast to what David's intent is. David's intent is to do this very joyously, very um, uh, in a very glorious manner on behalf of the Lord. 
He has, you know, they're, they're having worship music. Uh, it's quite a procession that they're doing. A number of people are involved. And it turns out to be kind of a tragic accident takes place here. And, and David is confronted with the fact this, this is not what he intended. This is not what was supposed to have happened. Um, you know, from it. So we're confronted with that. Now, there's also a lot of commentators that say, well, what's the application of this and how do we apply this to our lives? Well, let me go ahead and just be uh, completely blunt with you and just tell you that if by chance we find the Ark of the Covenant in one of the suspected caves and so forth, may I make a recommendation that if you're not a Levite priest, don't touch it. You know, it's dangerous to you. Um, and it's, it's a sign of irreverence toward God to come into contact with it. That's what is expressed here. Beyond that, I'm not sure what the appropriate application is for this, but suffice it to say, a healthy fear of God here would be very appropriate. Uh, you know, with regard to it, just to remind everybody, and it makes mention of this, the lid... The mercy seat is the cherubim with their wings, and it talks about God being enthroned. What it means is that's the actual seat. The shape of the manner of the wings, and I believe the cherubim, who had four wings, uh, maybe you've never seen an ark illustrated this way. I, I think all of the ark illustrations we've seen are inappropriate. But, and it has to do with cherubim wings, is there were two wings that covered and two wings that were upward. Now, if you were facing the ark on, you had one cherubim, his wings are extending this way, this one's extending this way, and then they had two wings that went upward like this, and what is formed in the wings of the cherubim is a seat, and that God's presence wasn't down on here, it was sitting above the wings of the cherubim. This passage says that. It says he wasn't sitting on the lid of the ark, He's sitting in the wings of the cherubim. Uh, and that's where the very presence of God was at. So um, that's some of, some of the more of the description with regard to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, in times past, let me, this is a sidebar um, moment here. Um, we've had a number of people uh, in my lifetime, in this generation, claiming to know where the Ark of the Covenant is at. For example, Got a couple of rabbis that said they saw it. It's in a cave underneath the Temple Mount. We've had uh, some who've advocated, no, it's at Mount Pisgah, uh, just into Jordan, across that way, that it was in a cave there, hidden. And then some have said, no, it was actually transported down and all the way to Ethiopia, and there's a building down there where they claim that the ark is down there. Uh, of all of the different theories that there are of it, uh, I believe the one that has the most accuracy, oh, oh no, there's another one too, that it was, there was one that claimed that the ark is um, outside of the gate, Damascus gate, the Arab gate, at the Arab bus station, there's a craggy uh, rock formation there, where the, um, and if you go to Jerusalem um, and you go to the, um, uh, the tourist site for the tomb, uh, of the Messiah, which is off in that area. There's a little garden area where you can look at this craggy formation where they, the, it used to be that they called it the place of the skull. You know, we know the Lord was, was crucified at Golgotha at the place of the skull. 
and uh, this is run by some British Christians that are over there, bless their hearts, and it's there by the air bus station, and they claim, there's a fellow who claims, that that's where he was crucified, and he was buried underneath that, in what's called Jeremiah's Grotto, uh, in that area. Well, let me go ahead and just tell you that the craggy rock that looks like a skull, that, that changed here not too long ago. There was a small earthquake in Jerusalem, and the rock that was holding the position that looked like the nose, it fell down. And so it just looks like a bunch of rocks. It doesn't look like a skull anymore. Um, and I just don't think it's the right place. And by the way, the guy who claims that he saw it in there, uh, I was able to ask him very directly what were the position of the wings of the cherubim. And he gave a description of the wings of the cherubim that did not line up with Scripture whatsoever. And others that I've heard, they don't line up with Scripture whatsoever. I've never seen anybody really advocate um, a, a, a visual of the Ark of the Covenant where the wings are in the proper place according to the way the Scripture does. They always make the mistake of giving the cherubim two wings instead of four. They never explain the upward thing. Even the Temple Institute takes the two wings... They raise them up and then they cover. So they, but they only show two wings. Cherubim have four wings. The scriptures are very emphatic about this. Two wings are going this way. Another two wings are going the other way. And they, they never, they've never illustrated it correctly. And as a result, this is part of the confusion, I think, for a lot of people is how is it, how is it the throne seat, the mercy seat of the Lord? This passage of scriptures emphatically supports the four-wing concept of the cherubim because it says he's enthroned or his throne seat is above the wings. And if you just have two wings going up this, that doesn't look like a seat. But if you have two wings going straight out covering and you have two wings that are upward, it forms an ancient seat. This is the way a throne seat would have looked amongst ancients. Well, if the wings of the, of the cherubim are in that position, it looks like a throne seat. And so uh, that's just a sidebar issue, and this is one of the scriptures that give evidence uh, to that discussion. Let me go on further here, because David, at this point, kind of doesn't proceed forward. You know, as a result of the death of this man, he stops. And he temporarily stores the ark at the location where it's at for some three months, and then he'll reapproach the problem of bringing the ark up. So, continuing on with what we have here, uh, at verse uh, 9 So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it aside to the house of this man Obed-Edom of the Gittite. And thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom and the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told to King David, saying, The Lord has blessed this man's house and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom, uh, into the city of David with gladness. Now, essentially, we don't believe that God purposely did this so that he could spend time at this poor man's house and bless him for a while, but it happened. And it's part of the testimony along the way of this journey. 
Uh, let me just say, for those of you who are spiritually minded, that we see things like this all the time. Uh, if you're walking along in the path of God and you're proceeding along, sometimes quirky things will happen and all of a sudden some blessing will pop up, you know, as a result of the circumstances that you were in. And it works out beautifully for this and it, it's kind of like one of these things. To me, that's part of what I try to express to other people, what I call living Torah, the living Word of God, that as you're walking it out and so forth, every which way you go, every step you take, um, interesting things happen that indicate, you know, God's presence, God's blessing, uh, you know, God's involved. And to me, uh, they're highly encouraging. Uh, and, and to be quite honest, um, whenever I'm traveling on a long trip, I like to see occasionally a road marker sign. I like to see the evidence that, yes, I'm on the right road, and the destination I'm going to is so many miles to it. And me, I pay attention to those. When I'm on a trip, and I want to make sure it counts down, you know, and I, I pay attention to the mile markers. And, and, and as I get closer to my destination, I anticipate and look for the advertisements of certain businesses or something that will be in the place where I'm going to. It's, it's all part of the evidence that compiles that says you're on the right path, you're getting there, and uh, this is the journey that you're on. And part of this is like a little marker to King David that says, look, David, you're on the right journey here. You're doing the right thing. Let me show you the blessing that came to this fellow that you just happened to temporarily park it in. You know, look at the good that has already taken place from this decision to do it. Whereas he may have hesitated about, should I be moving this ark at all? All of a sudden he gets this report, no, no, good things are happening. Obviously the Lord is in agreement with the idea of him going that way. So he goes back and renews his effort to bring the ark up to the city of Jerusalem. So let's continue on uh, with that because it says that's what he begins to do. Um, uh, verse 13, and so it was that when the bearers of the ark and the Lord had gone six paces, now you'll notice this time they're carrying it on the staves. They're not using the wagon. We've changed the methodology, okay, of how it's being transported. The bearers of the ark had gone six paces. He stopped them. That's kind of interesting. They start to walk, and he says, wait a minute. Let's offer gifts to the Lord. And so he sacrifices an oxen and a fatling to the Lord, you know, and uh, offers them up to the Lord. So they continue. And David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, my, my version says here, but it's more in the form of kind of a loincloth. He had wrapped himself in a linen. Now, so he was basically bare-bodied. Uh, he didn't have sandals on his feet. He, he didn't have a, a tunic on or whatever. And if you'd have seen him out there doing it, you would have said either he's an extremely poor man or he's being a, a touch immodest. I mean, it's a little bit like strolling through a restaurant wearing your bathing suit. You know, bathing suits are great at the beach, but when you wear bathing suits in other public places, it's a little... It's a little weird. It's like, why? You know? Um, and we would consider that being immodest, you know? And one of the things I try to teach 
especially uh, young men and young ladies, about how you attire yourself has a lot to do with the context you're in. There is nothing wrong with a bathing suit if you're at the swimming pool or if you're at the beach. Okay, There's a context for this, appropriateness for it. But the same outfit strolling around downtown is inappropriate. It, it's not in the proper context uh, for things, and it draws attention to you, uh, whether it be, you know, look, guys, in a men's room, when you're in the t toilet stall, it's okay for your pants to fall down. But walking through a mall with your pants hanging half down where it looks like you're looking for a commode is stupid. You know, it, it, it's silly. It's out of context. Um, and um, that a lot of our attire has to do with context. You know, we're living in a society today where the context of your apparel has dramatically changed. Um, and when I was a young man, if you went to church, you put on what was called your Sunday best. You attired yourself properly uh, so that you could present yourself properly before the Lord to worship the Lord and in front of other brethren who are doing the same thing. Ladies would wear very nice dresses. They wouldn't wear slacks. Oh, for crying out loud, a lady wearing slacks on Sunday. Oh, my goodness. You know, it would just appear to be out of context. A man walking in without at least a tie on his shirt, if he had an open collar, uh, you know, was, it was out of context. It's like you're being too casual. You're not being reverent. You're not presenting yourself appropriately for the context of what you're doing. Um, and in the business world where I used to work at, you, when I was in the business world, you wouldn't dare darken the door without a coat on and a tie on. And by the way, it better be pretty nice. I lived in the days when uh, if you worked for IBM, it, it better be a gray or a dark blue suit um, and no pinstripes. And you will wear a striped tie. And when you cross your heart, you better be crossing those stripes. If the stripes go in the other way, it's just inappropriate. And, oh, God forbid that you wear brown shoes. You know, you wear black shoes with that outfit. By the way, your socks better be black, too. Um, there was a context. And, and uh, in fact, there was a very famous book written when I was in the business world called Dress for Success that talked about as a culture, as a society, this is the way we operate. You see people based on their appearance. Now, the reason I mention all of this is because David is going to do something strange here. He is out of context for what other people see. He's only going to dress in this one linen garment, this one linen cloth, and he's going to be out in front of the ark dancing. And he is going to be worshiping the Lord in this manner. Now, we know in the aftermath, the reason why David was doing that was he was not trying to show himself to be the king of Israel, although he was. He had completely set aside all positions of honor that he had. He was deferring strictly to the Lord. And so he consciously and intentionally humbled himself before God to render this worship. He humbled himself down to the bare minimums. And that was his purpose. 
that he wanted to dance before the Lord and he wanted to show an example of humility before the Lord to let him have all the glory uh, that he he was not going to array himself in decor, a kingly decor, standing next to the bringing the Ark of the Covenant, bringing up uh, the very presence of God up into the city of Jerusalem. That was his intent, although that wasn't necessarily what people perceived when they saw this. And in fact, we're going to have a discussion with him and his wife about this in just a moment. Let me read further for you. Um, Verse 15, so David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord and shouting and the sound of trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, the Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all of the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, cake, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. Now, this is a very joyous thing the Lord is do- that, that David is doing. He brings the ark. He has a temporary place set up where it's going to stay until the, the, the house of the Lord is built. And, uh, and he holds this big festival. And he makes sweet cakes. Now, I don't know if you've had bread that has had bits of date or raisins in it, but it's very tasty. And so the idea was this was a sweet celebration. Um, He had made the offerings to the Lord, but now he wanted the people to partake in of a bread that was sweet uh, to the taste so that they could all partake in. And I was a part of the celebration of bringing the ark up to the city of Jerusalem and so forth. And he does it. So he, he finishes with everybody else. And now he goes to his house and he brings some in so that he can share with his own house. Verse 20. But when David returned to bless his household, Michal, the daughter Saul, came out to meet David and said, how, how the king of Israel uh, distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. And he ba- she basically mocked him. Oh, this was a great way for the king of Israel to be displayed. So you took your clothes off and you danced before the women of Israel. That's basically what she's saying to him. Well, let's just stop for a moment. That was not at all what David was doing. The context of what David was doing was a worship of the Lord and the bringing up of the Ark of the Covenant. And he, the king of Israel, was willing to diminish himself just to show all honor to that. And it was a great celebration. But she doesn't see the celebration part. She doesn't care about the Ark of the Covenant coming up. She's looking at him and wants to mock him. So she's completely missed the whole point of what's going on. Let me just give a little commentary for a moment. Uh, Many of you uh, that have come into the Messianic faith, you've begun to take up the feasts of the Lord. The special meal that we just got through eating recently of the uh, Passover. The special bread that we eat during the Feast of Unleavened, which we're still eating at the moment. Um, 
the all of these special things and other feasts and so forth, other people look at these things and they don't have the context for them. They don't see it as commandment. They don't see it as a feast to the Lord. They don't see where the Lord is connected to this. In the case of the Passover, they don't really quite get it that this is the feast of redemption, that this is when the Messiah himself made a feast with his disciples and brought about the what we call the communion service of the very bread, the very uh, drink that we drink to remember his death, burial, and resurrection. They barely have the context that, oh, I think that came out of that. But is it meaningful to them? In other words, uh, you know, we're instructed when we keep community, you know, to be very somber, to be very holy with the thing with regard to God. Did they understand that is what you do at Passover? That it's holy, it's somber, it's a worship of God. No, they, they don't get that context. They just think it's a cultural thing. It's a Jewish cultural thing. They don't, they don't connect. And as a result, they don't take it seriously. And when we as a Messianic share with other family members and friends, oh, you should come to the Passover, you should have the Passover, they don't take it seriously. And the reason is they don't get the context. They don't understand the meaning of it. Or counting the Omer and getting down to the Feast of Weeks or the Trumpets or they have Atonement or Tabernacles or the others, they don't have a context for it. They don't get it. And so what they have a tendency to do is not necessarily in your presence. Some, some do it in your presence. They'll mock you for what you're doing. Oh, uh, you're doing that. Oh, what are you, becoming a Jew? I've heard that one before. That's a really funny one for me to answer because I already am a Jew, so I don't know how I would become a Jew more. But anyways, but I can see them challenging other brethren that way. Um, and and they, they think the whole business of doing this is, is just going overboard. It's just too much. You know, God's grace through the Messiah handles all that stuff. We don't, we don't have to show that kind of enthusiasm uh, in our worship of the Lord. Look, when David came doing this, he was dancing the whole way into Jerusalem with all of his might. All the instruments playing, the fanfare, the trumpets blaring, and a, a whole crowd of people there cheering and going along with the whole process. This thing was a, a spectacle. Other people observing it, if they don't have the context of what is really involved here, they probably looked at it and said, well, those guys sure are being fanatical and ridiculous. And by the way, that's the way we tend to be viewed. Our liturgy, we're a little fanatical. Oh, they're wearing the kippah, they're wearing the talit. Oh, they're being fanatical. You know, they, they, they don't need that. We don't need that stuff with Jesus. And they mock it. They're like David's wife. Now, this particular wife was the daughter of King Saul. So she had some heritage in the Lord. But she completely misunderstood the context of what was going on and decided to speak against the king and speak against uh, the things of the Lord. Uh, that is dangerous to do. Very dangerous to do. As a result, there was an interesting form of judgment that fell upon her. As a result, she bore no child. You know, God closed up her womb. She's married to the king. She's going to have children who are going to be the sons of the king, 
not through her. And by the way, that's a very critical issue because it's one of the sons of David that ultimately will become the Messiah and she just got cut out of the line. That was a very severe judgment. She was in line to be the woman that the messianic lineage would have come through. But the Lord removed her from that. That was a very severe punishment, I can assure you, for her behavior and her actions. Now, what follows here is um, that David is going to have a conversation with Nathan, the prophet. Chapter 7. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. And what, he was, what was in his mind was, I want to build a permanent house for the ark to dwell in. I want to build a house for the Lord to dwell here in Jerusalem. Very good thing. God had promised that he was going to put his name in a certain place. King David wants to uh, carry that out and to do that. But here's what basically transpires. Nathan says, hey, this is a good thing. Press on. But he walks away, and then the Lord speaks to Nathan and has another message to take back to King David. Here's what happens. Um, verse 4, but it came about in the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying... Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all of the sons of Israel, did I speak a word to one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, O Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you've gone, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them. And they may live in their own place, and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of the king of David forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son uh, to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all of these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Essentially, David said, I want to build a house to the Lord that, that we can house the ark. And at first blush, it sounds like this is a great idea. Well, we've got to put this in perspective now. And then the Lord says, look, David, 
You remember when I brought your ancestors up out of Egypt? I dwelt in a tent. Did I ever tell any of the tribes of Israel, build me a house of cedar, build me a permanent place? No, I never have. I'm still been dwelling in a tent. I'm, I'm happy in a tent. Now you want to come along and you want to build me a house of cedar. You want to build me a permanent house like your house for me to dwell in. However, uh, this is the way it's going to work. Not you, but your son will. I will have your son do this. But in the course of doing this, I'm going to establish your throne forever. And your son, a son of yours, will sit on that throne forever. Now, what he was really speaking to is that the Messiah was going to come forth from him. And the Messiah would be called the son of David. And the Messiah would establish that. Now, we also know King Solomon is the guy who actually did build the, um, the temple there in Jerusalem, just as the Lord also said. And he also foreshadowed the Messianic kingdom. During the days of King Solomon, when the enemies of Israel all put at bay, it was the greatest time of the nation of Israel. King David defeated all of his enemies all around him. King Solomon sat on his throne and had peace the entire time. And he was able to build the temple, and it was glorious. The temple was glorious uh, for it. And so, as the Lord had said, it will be your son that will do it. Well, there's a great prophecy there. And we know it's the son of David who builds the permanent house of God and brings about the glory of God. Not by the act of a man. However, because of David's heart toward this, his throne is established forever. And he's honored greatly. In fact, as he said to him, King David, to this day, in all world cultures is known. Did you know that? The Romans make reference to King David. Michelangelo made a statue about King David. Uh, the Chinese know about King David. World history knows about this King David guy. And they know he was the guy who defeated his enemies, rallied the whole nation of Israel, uh, the Goliath, uh, him defeating Goliath in his youth, him coming from being a shepherd boy uh, to becoming the king of a nation, and then uniting that nation in a, an incredible way, gathering materials, and that his son became known as the wisest man in the world who actually built the temple and established the city of Jerusalem on this uh, planet. By the way, the city of Jerusalem is the oldest capital city in the world of all nations. Did you know that? It's more than 3,000 years old, going back to the days of King David, establishing the city of Jerusalem. Very powerful man, very powerful life, and his name is still with us today, as the scripture said, promised to him, that he's one of the great names of men that have ever lived in the history of the world. Uh, it's a very fascinating story. And again, the reason why they put this portion in with the Torah portion is you saw the death of the man who touched the ark. You saw the death of Aaron's sons. We saw it had to do with establishing uh, the tabernacle. It has to do with establishing the temple in Jerusalem. That's the parallel for our passage. Many, many thoughts uh, that go into this passage. I hope it was a blessing to you all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you, Lord, for the days that we're in, the days of unleavened bread, 
And we thank you, Lord, for your blessings um, concerning all of these things. And we thank you, Lord, for um, this portion and teaching us all about it. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. Make way before the king 